Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. forced intimacy I don't like Valentine's Day much and I don't like a hug when I don't want to receive it but I like it when it comes unbidden and natural like you may know that I grew up in a house without a car or a telephone or a television and these were important little ingredients in my cooking pot But over the years, the place where I could get access to a telly was my granny and my grandparents. And there came a fortunate point in all our lives when they were living just down the hill on the same road. And they granted me access to come into their house really late at night, maybe 11 to 1 o'clock in the morning, and watch late night music shows. I am ashamed to tell you, (laughs) I can't believe I'm even divulging this, that the room with the telly in was their bedroom. It was the room that they actually slept in. My grandpa had angina and couldn't go up the stairs. So he slept downstairs with Granny. At the bottom of the bed was a television. And it was into that room and into their slumber regularly I would invade with my little set of headphones, turn the television on and, oblivious to their potential discomfort, watch uh, music programmes or whatever it was into the night. But, weirdly, over time, it became comfortable between all of us. In fact, sometimes I'd look round from the flickering screen and I could see that Granny and Grandpa were actually enjoying having me there and looking over the covers themselves and watching the telly and maybe even talking a bit to each other. It became like a kind of little warm, dark, invitational, ancestral cave. And I miss both of them very much. They're living presences to me, really. And I sometimes just want to go back. I just want to go back to those evenings saying nothing to each other but the warm flank of kindness moving between us. And it was down there at one of those sessions, a big thing happened. I saw a movie, a late night movie, called The Company of Wolves, which was a kind of contemporary fairy tale, dream pop-like story, originally by Angela Carter, directed by Neil Jordan. Uh, And it's this strange, rather garish, maybe not aged that well, but I totally love it, film of fairy tales and dreaming, as I have already said. But the thing impacted itself on me because the one thing I really had purchase on, even as a very confused teenager, was my love of fairy tales. And it was seeing 
The Company of Wolves. It was seeing a late night show, which I feel almost like I dreamed this up, where there was a female psychologist saying that fairy tales were the secret history of the earth, certainly the secret history of the West. And I thought that was the most exciting, sexy thing I had ever heard, having no idea where my own life would take me. And this all happened in this room where behind me, breathing in and out like the sighing of the tides, was Alec and Christine Gibson. Years ago, I first heard the music of Bat for Lashes, and that really comes from the talent of a woman called Natasha Khan, who's the singer-songwriter and the visionary of that great uh, mythopoic ensemble. And from her first record, Fur and Gold, which I think was back in 2006, up to her most recent rocking little record, Lost Girls, in 2019, I felt a great kinship, actually, for what Natasha is doing. I can feel fairy tales, I could feel theatre, I can feel the electricity of lived experience, all of this moving through her work. And I don't know if she's seen Company of Wolves or not, but I think she would gravitate to all the things that I did in that film as well. She has won a Novello Award for her singer-songwriting. She's also a very gifted artist. I would say she's a mystical explorer. And also she has recently become a mother. We knew each other about five years ago, and she very kindly invited me on to BBC Six on her show to tell an alternative Christmas story. So I told the story of the Fox Woman. But it's been a while and a move to Los Angeles and all sorts of things have happened since then. So I'm excited for us to go and uh, catch up with Natasha Khan. Dear Natasha, it is so good to see your face again with your wonderful new fringe <laughs> and your baby and your music and your magical mystery school and everything you're getting up to. So pleased to see you. It's wonderful to see you. Yeah, uh, it's been a while, hasn't it? You know, the last time we were together, we were going up onto a very misty Dartmoor <laughs> to inspect visionary <laughs> sites and I accidentally put unleaded petrol in my diesel car. Oh, yes! And you very patiently, <laughs> we sat there for about five hours. And uh, we just sat there and listened to Joni Mitchell, finally got up into the mists. And actually, it, you know, we had, a good, we had a good time wandering about. But wonderfully, the revenge has been this. Shortly after you left, I put my CD uh, of The Bride into the car stereo, where it's now been trapped for two and a half years. No! That... <laughs> oh, that spell worked then! <laughs> I know, it did. I could deliver, <laughs> I could probably deliver a doctorate on the, on the mythopoetics of that album at this point. <laughs> luckily, luckily, oh. me, and, me and my daughter love it, so we sort of headbang as we're driving up and down the moors oh. and the rest of it. But look, first of all, I suppose it's been years. How are you doing? What have you been up to? Gosh, what haven't I been up to? I mean, producing, I produced a human being, which was fun instead of an album yeah. <laughs> over, the, over the last year and a half. Yeah, I, I, I guess I moved to LA shortly after we hung out um, in Dartmoor and 
it was sort of an experiment in trying to find a, a new creative community. And I'd heard about your work at, um, you know, the university up the coast and just the whole California mystique was sort of calling me. And so I've been here for four years now. Um, did the last album, The Lost Girls, here. And then I fell pregnant and then COVID happened. So, yeah, it's been an interesting sort of four years with a lot of different things happening. You, I mean, you're really, you're well-travelled and you've done a ton of touring. But I wondered how it was for you arriving in America at such a sort of an explosive moment, change in presidency, everything that was going on there. And I know that you got a lot of love for England. You got mm. a lot of, you know. So, so how how was that? My brother lives in San Francisco, mm. and I know he has a bit of an on-off relationship with being there all the time. How how's that been? It's interesting because I started writing a book of letters to to my daughter Delphi when she was the size of a tomato seed. That's the first page to my dear little one. You're the size of a tomato seed, and <laughs> I'm living in America and. Um, the elections are coming and the death of George Floyd is happening. And there's this, I've read, read a page the other day, there's this strange flu that's been happening. I hope it doesn't come over here, you know. Yeah. And so as, as I'm reading, I, I kept sort of writing in this journal to her, but it's become this document of a very strange time in history for America, especially, as you say, politically and socially. There was a lot of riots in L.A., there was a, just a huge outpouring of grief, collective grief, I think. And everybody sort of was made to sit still for a second. And I think a lot of volcanic kind of under, you know, like underbelly of, of emotion sort of started stirring in the country. And it felt at times very scary and volatile and, and just sad. There was a lot of sadness. But then alongside that, what I love about the Americans is that they're also so open and mm. community-based and kind of we we all sort of group together and there's been more driveway, you know, cinema screening nights dressed up as the women from Grey Gardens or like tea parties out on the lawn. You know, there's been more of that than ever before, home baking and growing vegetables and, you know, so it's sort of off balance with this very... Um, sweet kind of quiet homegrown way of living which I hadn't experienced in America before but yeah the the whole presidency thing was insane and I, I my family kept saying just come home <laughs> um but I was heavily pregnant at that time and I couldn't fly yeah and I ended up having my baby at home well I, I'd always planned that but it was very lucky because in the hospitals they were being very strict and not letting anyone else no partners in or anything so Wow. Um, so I was really lucky to have my baby at home and we sort of have created our own little universe in a way out of a bit. out of it, um, which doesn't relate that much to the old America that I knew. What, you know, it's, it's, it might be hard to answer, but I'm just really interested. Enormous dimensions opened up in me when I became a dad mm. that I never could have really anticipated before then. And I wondered what, you know... For such an alchemical being as yourself, <laughs> what's 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 been what's it been like? It's been highly emotional and heart expanding. Um, the love that I have felt has I can only liken it to that sort of beginning part of a love relationship where you're just 
you just feel yourself falling from such a great height that the yeah. fear is 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 just palpable and um I've never felt so scared of losing something in my whole life um and so the poignancy of every day sort of certain things become extremely poignant that I never noticed before and I think creatively it's it's um it's the first thing in a long time that's sort of been like a a plug you know like a bath plug kind of holding my creativity in because I can't mm. write and be spontaneous and do all the things and travel like I wanted to so it's quite nice though because that creative space just gets blocked but it builds and builds and builds and then when I do have a moment I'm really focused and productive and I'm you know I'm making like a, an opus <laughs> like this this sort of like arranged choral huge piece for Delphi it's like a, in movements uh, an album and then I've been making this sort of tarot stroke oracle deck doing all of these drawings and you know she goes down for a nap for an hour and a half and I'll just just zoom through <laughs> into a different yeah. dimension and just kind of try and call on all my spirits and guides and and you know just get get cosmic with it and then I'm back into like changing nappies and wiping her yeah. dribble off her chin and getting spat on and rubbing it, you know, <laughs> kissing her. <laughs> is she a year old yet? She is, she's nine months old, nine months. So she's nine months in, nine months out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. You, I'll, I'll, you'll have to force me to move on from baby talk because once I'm in there, I'm just, I love <laughs> well, they're so... They're, they're so, so magical. They're, they're, so, they're so magical. And the love mm. of which I am also, you know, mm. I, I've experienced it. It never, it never ends. It's absolutely mm. terrifying, and every year is like, oh, this is the best year. Yeah, she's four. Oh my god, she's four. Oh my god, she's four. Yeah, <gasps> she's seven. Oh my god, she's seven. She's sixteen. Oh my god, she's sixteen. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's it suddenly. Um, I would suspect, looking at your sort of extraordinary output in the decade or 12 years leading up to this, you know, that kind of dry, that very unusual thing that you have where you've got all this talent, but you also got, you know, the kind of, the the chutzpah that's required. to. It's It's great to have one or two great songs, but to be consistent and to do it and to do it and show up again and again like you have... I find it amazing that suddenly, as you say, you're you're having to renegotiate time now. You don't have four weeks, you have four minutes or four hours. Mm. And that in itself must create some other kind of uh some other kind of cooking, I suppose. As an artist, I think there's a moment where I went into being professional and I was full time. Before that I was a nursery school teacher, I worked in like the Tesco you know, Pizza Hut and uh, the BP Garage Pizza Hut and things like that. And I was always working, always working. And then suddenly at 26, I got this publishing check and I was allowed to stop doing nine to five jobs and become a, a, a musician full time. And that is a blessing and a curse in a way. I think sometimes when you're allowed to just do what you want, like it's like a blank canvas you know there's that sort of thing of where do I start what do I do and so I had to I would give myself missions to go on places to travel projects to do because I just I very much thrive off routine and and structures and boundaries around my 
tendency to travel places in my mind or or physically. But it's been a long time since I felt that sort of, what's the word when, I, I guess it makes me think of like a rubber band, the elasticity of something pulling mm. and creating tension. And for me, it's actually really nice to have a bit of tension back, a bit of, oh God, I wish I could be playing the, the piano right now, but I can't because I have to you know, feed my baby and put her to bed or take her for a walk. She hasn't been out yet today. And mm. there's sort of this um, humbling, like this love that you feel for this being, it takes takes prime position and your care of them and what you think they need becomes more important. But your art sort of almost goes subterranean and becomes like this little secret that's brewing and bubbling under the surface. And I haven't had a sort of secret love affair for quite a long time, you know, where... <laughs> You can't go whenever you want to meet the person under their window or steal a kiss on their doorstep, you know. You, so now it's like there's a romance that comes out of that. Yeah. I'm thinking, as you're saying that, of the old Cornish romance around here called Tristan and Isolde. Mm. And one of the things you learn in that story and in all the old myths is if you really want to burn in a story, if you really want to cook... It happens in the absence, not the presence of the beloved. Yes. So I love what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm afraid a little bit, a little, a little bit of that. Otherwise, it's we all know what domesticity can do, you know. And and that I I remember when I became a dad. I'm working four different jobs. I'm saying, you know, do you want fries with your myth? You know, I'll do anything (laughs) to just. To, to keep this little bambino going, to keep her functioning, to, to, to yeah. care for her mum, you know, just to defend it. It brings out, I'm sure you've experienced, primordial energies. Mm. Really, really primordial. Now, as I was thinking and looking forward for us catching up, I was looking again and listening to your records over the years and thinking about the fact that we're both mad about fairy tales, we're mad about myths and stories and strange, scary, romantic happenings. Now you've, have, you've got a little moment, this totally fresh thing, like nothing could ever prepare you for where you are now. Mm. When you look back at what you've made, these, these, these records, and I've been listening to Sex Witch again and all of that... Oh, yeah. There, that, that was fabulous. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think of them? What was, what was going on? This kind of personal mythos that you're cooking, and I hope you'll tell us a little bit about kind of where you are now with that, because I know you've got uh, plans to sort of invite people closer into your world. Yes, um, it's funny because I don't. I suppose I don't really look back that much. I feel like each record each phase each album has just been like a audio diary I suppose or a document of wherever I'm at at the time and as you said we love to create myth or to study myth and storytelling and I guess because of the mundane aspects of life the domesticity of life the difficulty of just being in the world my way of escaping or even just elevating my perception of what's going on is to create a story out of everything I live and then to put music and words to it and visuals and videos and films and colours and sensations. It could just, it goes on and on. But I think as a small child, that was my coping mechanism for dissent in the family home and the, the feeling of the, the home and, and sort of this unrest that was in my house. 
I would just go off into my own world and play in my bedroom with miniature objects and make up stories and characters. And so I think I've always been doing it. So it's funny, I suppose it's the same as saying how often do I look back at childhood pictures or family parties or um, birthdays that I've had. And I, I don't really. I think I'm probably more of a future looking person. But as you just said, I suppose the way it's evolved or evolving now, partly because of the way the music industry has gone, partly because of the more homegrown aspects of this last couple of years and having a baby I've realized that my happiest was when I was back at art school you know making dioramas making light boxes doing a painting doing a recipe doing a animation you know and so I thought to myself how am I gonna bring all these other aspects together and sort of invite people into my universe into this into this mythology that I just naturally can't help but create but want to share so there's quite a few projects like you know that I've showed you some of that of those things mm. but there's a few projects underway which I think are perhaps more intimate and personal but they still come under that guise of storytelling and healing through art and music and the summoning of muses and creativity and how to sort of turn your life into you know a narrative like what's the narrative of your life and how can you use symbols and characters and myths to sort of bring a bit of magic into your life. I, I just know that people listening to this will be getting excited and, <laughs> and wanting to know more about it. Is it is there like a, 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 you know, a website or can they find out about it on Instagram or something like that? Yeah, so I, I have just launched um, a Patreon site, which is where fans or people that want to be part of the community can pay five or ten pounds a month and they have access to a sort of my little world. So I put up, you know, uh, collages that I've made at home with references to different films and poems and spoken word things I enjoy that they should check out or painters. And you sort of, you know, I've posted up a visit to the Eames house and a collage that I made out of these tiny objects I found on the beach and just sort of how I turn my experiences into art and I'm also going to be doing some sort of mystical tarot stroke oracle readings from this deck that I've been making, which I'm very excited about because that is, it doesn't follow a traditional tarot. It's not like a set as the tarot is made, but it's my own mythology, my own characters and archetypes. And there are methods on each of the cards that it's sort of like being a student of my school of witchery you know I share methods and means by which I contact the unseen voices <laughs> you know the inspiration the muses um yeah so I've been really enjoying drawing all of these quite surreal fantastical cards and then devising the meaning of the card but giving a lot of space for the person that's that's reading the card to add their own narrative to that that imagery and then to do these methods to sort of bring out some uh deep and wonderful inspiration you were saying a, a minute ago that back in the day you know you you enjoyed teaching or you certainly did teaching yes and as i'm listening to you what's kind of exciting for me is this kind of combination of the, the choral pieces you're describing you're making for your daughter but that 
you can also reach out and do this tarot set, which I've been lucky enough to see some of it. It's very elegant and frightening and wonderful and black and white and great. But I like what you're describing because it seems like related threads, but everybody can weave their own carpet out of it. Mm-hmm. People keep asking me about, you know, the last year and do I have some sort of powerful one-statement narrative that I can give to try yeah. and, and give it a context. It happens all the time. But I'm reminded of a writer called Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry said, a big question is not figured out by a big answer. And I liked that. And I was actually talking to a rabbi a couple of days ago whose family are currently, they're in the Gaza area and they're being bombed and the whole thing. And he's doing Mm. tons of work between Palestine and and Jewish cultures. And he was saying, you know, maybe it's not answers we need, it's responses. Mm. And I like the difference between an answer that he was saying, that's the end of the conversation. The answer's Mm. the end of the conversation. But a, a response is different. It, 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 so I, I love, I love. yeah, I think I'm going to have to join your school. I think that's what's <laughs> going to have to happen. You'll just, there'll just be this little mischievous creature at the back taking notes. So, <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted to go to your school or, you know, where you teach, but it, obviously it's, it's pretty hard to sort that out now. But. It, it is, but you know, you know what, Natasha, I've done what you've suggested. I went back to art school, basically. I, there's a lovely mm. art school down here, Dartington, School of Art, yeah. and I now run an MA there called Poetics of Imagination, which is broad enough a term for you to really do interesting things. Yeah. Uh, so I, I live in hope that at a, t- at a time when it can happen, you and the family can come over, and if you're ever interested in doing a bit of teaching, it would, oh, that sounds great. It would rock. Yeah. Uh, so I love, I love being back in art school, and like you, I, I remember it very fondly. Has it changed? I mean, I, I remember my art school was just full of, like the tutors were just these incredible fossils from like 1960 they were doing art happenings and avant-garde theatre and create we had a technician um bob who would you walked into his strange sort of studio offices and he'd created these giant synths made out of you know like modular synths that he was soldering himself and he had a constant drip of snot like hanging off the end (laughs) of his nose and he was just this mad scientist and so brilliant and we had people that taught dance and theatre and we had old German animation cameras and it was all this rickety old equipment that you could pull out of cupboards and they'd say oh we think that hasn't probably been used for 20 years but let's try and they were very open and then they sort of got a new head of the the course a new head of course came in and and made everything very digital and sort of um futuristic and uh, and kind of stamped out quite a lot of that weird idiosyncratic art school mindset and I remember feeling really sad I think we were probably the last year that really benefited from all that English eccentricity Um, but I'm glad to hear that you're teaching in a school because I think you have some of that and I wonder what you think of the new the new kids and what they're the way they think about the world. Well first of all it's interesting that the class has you know 27 women and one men one man in it for a start (laughs) so you know, <laughs> yeah. so 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 that that has that has explosive. It's like the spirit of the age. Mm. There's something happening, and it's really powerful, and it's it's great to bear witness. 
it's heavy lifting at times, it's challenging at times, but uh, you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Mm. The, the, difficult, the difficult thing has been uh, for this last year having to do everything online. Yes. And I do, with the best will in the world, I, a lot of Zoom stuff, I come out just fried. It's exhausting. I yeah. really do come out fried. So we're just at a point now where the school itself can open up. It's the most... I wonder if I might... I've, you've been there. I have, You've yeah. been there, actually. Dartington Hall. Yes, I really loved it. Beautiful medieval courtyard. But it is full of eccentricity. It's full of dusty cupboards with synths from 1972 and the collected works of William Blake and <laughs> strange... Do you know that old, that wonderful French phrase, bricoleur, mm. to be a bricoleur? You take one thing and another thing and with the strange counterweight of your imagination, <sighs> some new mythology sort of sparks up. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what I'm invested in. It's what I love is curiosity. You know, because of my stuff teaching wilderness rites of passage for years, often people ask me, they say, well, you know, how do I, how do I stay connected to the wild? And my only thought really would be, if you notice that in your life you are losing curiosity, mm. you're probably in a dangerous place. Yeah. Uh, but if you're curious, you're going you're gonna to find more probably than you need. Yes, because I, I agree the curiosity just keeps you moving forward. I think that's, you know, in the last few days, my, my life is, you know... <laughs> is very much based around the baby like we spoke about and the last few days I've been feeling like oh my god it's so monotonous yeah this endless monotony and and because I guess the world is opening up a bit over here restaurants are opening people are doing things again and I start to feel trapped like oh I'm missing out you know so it, in a way it's been such a gift that the whole world shut down when I had a baby because <laughs> <laughs> because I because I I sort of surrendered to that tiny nucleus and that little microcosm of love um but as you say like the curiosity now is starting to peak again um and like we talked about that tensions coming in and I, so I don't think I have a problem of not being curious but sometimes a problem of feeling stifled um but I think I like like you said I would rather be curious than just not caring yeah well sometimes it's good to be bored too I remember that as a child being terribly bored and then making really great games out of a cardboard box because I had nothing else. Talking of that, are you in touch with you? I know you are very, you know, you're, you're the music, a lot of the musicians you've worked with over the years have been real friends and comrades of yours. Mm. Are you in touch with them at the moment? Yes, yeah, always in touch with... I mean, there's so many beautiful people that have walked the path with me and then gone off to do their own amazing thing or work with somebody, you know... Everybody's sort of connected in that familial way. And especially when I had the baby, I had um, a Zoom, like a Zoom baby shower. But there were so <laughs> many gorgeous people on that. I mean, just so many women from all over the world and from all different eras of my life. Um, and I'm 41. So I, I was just like, I haven't, you know, I haven't been alive that long in the grand scheme of things. But I feel like they're almost like, beautiful wolves you know that come out of the woods and just walk along with you for a moment and then go back off they all have their different fur and different look in their eyes and they're just sort of these magnificent creatures that kind of come in and out of my life but they always walk by my side and keep me safe so those are the women in my life and the women musicians and the men musicians that among those have been 
like you say, comrades and sort of always felt like they've kept my soul safe and been, been sort of guardians at the door of my creativity. And I've been doing some cards on that too. I think just in the sort of creative process, it's really important to to share your creative spirit, but only with the right people at the right time, especially in the formative moments when you're creating something. I'll I'll send something to my very old engineer or my old bandmate and just be like, what do you think of this? You know, because I know their soul, I know their mind. And to me, there's sort of a preciousness about, it's like having a brand new baby and sort of just showing it off to the world immediately. You don't want to do that. You want to hold it close and let it sort of get strong. And those people are are that to me. They're my little safekeeping guardians. And in this time where suddenly there's this incredible focus on, you know, keeping this little babe in good health and watching her grow and all the magic that comes with that. But there's also the beginning of a door opening and, you know, live events are about to happen. I'm about to, on Saturday, for the first time really for a long time, I'll be in the real with people. Mm. And I was talking to the actor Mark Rylance a few days ago I and we were talking, do you like, are you, good, I'll, I'll relay that to him. <laughs> um, Mark was talking, he had this brilliant phrase, he said, it's very difficult as an actor, if you do something that really works, mm. the temptation the next night is to reheat the meal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good. and it's never, so good. never as good. <laughs> no, it always, you turn the same way, you make the same quip. And it falls flat. Yeah. I was watching a, uh, a a video of you at the Shepherd's Bush Empire doing uh, Horse and Eye. Mm. And you can hear the crowd and everyone's laughing and you feel like they're a herd of... You can almost sort of feel the steam coming off the backs. And I was like, <laughs> God, I miss that. I mm. miss that. I miss that. However, I don't want to reheat my own meal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm in. I'm in a different place to where to where I was when this began for me. Right. I have different interests now. Yeah. And I want to honour this strange incubation I've had in this cottage for well over a year. Mm. So I don't. I, I'm going to have to show fidelity to actually what really wants to happen, rather than just trying to orientate as quickly as possible, mm. because I'm having the freakish experience of actually <laughs> being in front of other people. Yeah. You know. So we we shall see. I saw a clip of some, like a beautiful home concert you did recently. Yeah, that was actually done in my neighbour's cab. They have a little cabin in our garden that they live in sometimes um, because they own our house. They're our landlords, essentially, and they live in Santa Cruz most of the time. But when they do come back, they'll stay in the little outhouse. And so the cabin was just this, you know, tin garage that wasn't very nice. And they've put up all these really beautiful redwood planks all inside and it's sort of become like a David Lynch lodge really it looks like Mm. a Twin Peaks lodge so they were kind enough to let me set up and get filmed and do the music in there for this live stream Uh, and it was nice because the baby could have her naps and do her stuff and there weren't men trudging around (laughs) putting wires together you know but it was interesting because obviously I didn't have an audience I mean I did but they weren't physically there with me and you have to create this intimacy out of your imagination which I suppose in some ways I'm I'm quite relaxed with that you know I sometimes when I'm on stage and there's very bright lights you can't really see 
all of the people's faces or really differentiate their features or anything. So many times I would come out on stage and it would be this glaring light and it can be very imposing and throw you off centre. So one of my techniques was to imagine that I was in a giant forest and at the back I could sort of see darkness and that, that to me would be huge redwood trees all the way around us. And then I would imagine we were all in a forest and then sort of concentrate on the energy and the feel of the room rather than seeing these individuals. So when I did the performance in the cabin, I think I just went into that same space where I, I sort of was looking down a dark hole as a camera lens. But inside that lens, I was connecting on a, a sort of heart space level to these people. And it's interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't less intimate. It was just a different form of intimacy. And it's very vulnerable because you don't get an applause or any response to what you're doing. So there's just silence. And I think on the first one, I was like, thank you. <laughs> and then felt kind of silly. But I think part of what I've learned this year is there's a lot of vulnerability in isolation and, and then a lot of vulnerability in coming out and seeing people again or performing to people when you feel rusty or you haven't done it for a long time. And like you said, when you've gone through this strange collective metamorphosis and we're, we're all feeling very raw and sort of stripped of our old skin but I just wanted to flow with the rawness and let people see that I felt vulnerable and I've had you know I've given birth to a baby and I'm breastfeeding and I'm sleep deprived and I couldn't remember my cords for you know three weeks of the practicing I was doing and I was freaking out you know because my brain wasn't going there but I think the humanity in all of us the the foibles and the sort of nervousness is is beautiful and and if I can't show that then you know I don't think people would enjoy it as much if you just tried to be perfect exactly I saw an earlier thing you'd done at home or somewhere near and you've just come in the room and you just say you don't have to watch all of it <laughs> You don't have to watch all of it, which I thought was like a genius. I'm sure it was just the first thing that came into your head. But it was a genius. It was a genius move because it. Do you know what I mean? It does loosen you up. It's like great. I'll play. I'll, I'll enjoy three songs. I'll go and have a pina colada. I'll come back. This is good. Yeah. I. I I'm gonna. I might try and do that on Saturday. Actually, I'll say you don't have to stay for the whole event. Yeah. And just drift in and out. And just. Just let me g gabble on in the corner. You know, yeah. To my imaginary friends. Yes. Exactly. You know. <laughs> oh, my God. Any plans to get over here again at some point? I'm planning on coming back with the baby. I did come back at Christmas. We sort of slipped in and out of the country before Christmas oh. was cancelled yeah. um, and had a sort of very bizarre, you know, just got to see a very small proportion of the people I wanted to see and, and introduce to the baby. But my mum and stepdad got to meet the baby and my brother and sister. So that was very special. Um but I do need to come back in the summer just for work visa reasons and all sorts of like, you know, admin reasons. So I think hopefully I'll be back for a month. And the plan is to stay in California for a few more years just because there does seem to be a sort of sea change with the creative output here. Having seen the way COVID has changed things, LA can be a very, as you know, sort of ego-based Hollywoody sort of you know there's a lot of weirdness here in, in that sense but in my creative community at least everybody seems to be 
you know, desperate for connection and community and creating things together. And I do feel this sort of swelling of that, this tide is sort of rising and I, I'd like to ride that wave for a bit. But as soon as Delphi is school age, I do want to come back to England because I want her to, to go to school in England and I want her to, you know, reap the benefits of the countryside and the seasons and the windy lanes and the city and, you know, just all that it has to offer in the grimness and the sadness and the, you know, <laughs> all of the things I grew up struggling and with and loving, you know. There's a grit to England, which there isn't to California. And I, I think that's really made me who I am. And I, you know, I want her to have the choice. Well, Natasha, you know, America is very lucky to have you at this moment. You are a national treasure. Yeah. And I speak on behalf of Old Albion. Yeah. That, you know, just keep being surrounded by people that love you and, and just let you be great and marvellous and all the things that you are. And uh, we all look forward to seeing you and Delphi and the whole, the whole ensemble. Thanks, Martin. Lots of love. Thank you. You too. So I mentioned the story at the beginning of today, the fox woman, and I think I'll finish with it now as a good gifting to Natasha and to Sam and little toddler. Delphi. Once upon a time there was a hunter and it was the end of the day and he was knackered and he came back to his hut and he saw a strange thing. He saw an alarming thing, a little trail of smoke coming from the chimney and when he got into his hut it was incredible. Someone had prepared him some food, someone had taken his little knackered bundle of clothing and they'd sewn it up and they'd even washed it. No one had been this kind to him before. A few days later, he came back early, and sure enough, he found out who was doing it, because with her back to the hunter was a woman cooking, and she was grinding herbs into a stew, and she was singing words under her breath. It is hard for us to understand anymore. And he knew in the way that hunters know she was part woman, part fox, part spirit of the forest. And she knew, like all women know, when they're being watched. So she turned and she said this, I will be the woman of this hut. And he looked at her and he knew a good thing. And he said, yes. Oh, it was a sweet scene that night. It's the kind of scene we're all a little jealous of to this day. They sat there and they told stories together and it turned out she knew many songs of the forest and jokes of the forest. And they really fell into love's swan feather cloak together. She did indeed have a fox belt. It really was part of her and she had it hanging off the door. And for a while, their love was so complete, the hunter didn't notice the strong regal scent that it was giving off. But after a while, it was a strong perfume to have in a domestic setting. So one night, he said, you are everything to me, and I've loved our time together. But the scent of the pelt is so overwhelming, 
it's so hard in a little space with just the two of us. Would you consider hanging it from a tree or, or some distance distance from the place? I really, it's, it's too much. And she looked at him and she sort of bent her neck slightly. She looked a little quizzical, a little disappointed, said nothing. And the next day, the pelt didn't go anywhere. Well, time passes and time passes and time passes until finally the smell of that fox pelt, I tell you, it seemed to be on his clothes. It seemed to be on his traps. It seemed to have even soaked into his mind until one day, with no diplomacy left in him, the hunter said, I told you once before, get rid of the fucking pelt. And in the morning, in the morning, the fox woman was gone, the pelt was gone, and the scent was gone. And they say, and they say truly, that to this day, the hunter stands by the entrance of the hut, lonely in his whole body for the scent of the fox woman. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. <laughs>